and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor of Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with Neil Landstrom. Since emerging from the Edinburgh scene in the mid-90s, the Scottish producer and designer has made a habit of messing with dance music's DNA. His breakout records for Peace Frog took the bleepy minimalism of Chicago and early DBX into deranged yet funky new territories, combining dexterous hardware programming with a subtly wacky sense of humour. As the decade progressed, Landstrom became associated with the so-called wonky techno sound, along with the likes of Christian Vogel and Tobias Schmidt, and also helped rejuvenate Trezor's in-house label with a string of strikingly inventive LPs. But Landstrom was never beholden to anyone's sound, and went on to connect grime and dubstep with the UK hardcore continuum on his albums for Planet Moo in the late 2000s. In conversation with Holly Dicker, he looks back on over two decades of pushing the sonic envelope and the road to becoming one of Scotland's crucial electronic artists. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Neil Landstrom is up next. makes sense to start right at the beginning. Take us back to 91, 92, Edinburgh, teenage years. Are you going raving yet? What's the scene like? Well, I was 16 and 90. So really my first contact was uh, seeing the Happy Mondays at the SCCC in Glasgow. And they had the Hacienda DJs before and they were playing LFO and tracks like a lot of the bleep tracks and that was really my first contact with uh, the kind of exploding rave thing and after that it was just pursuing research in like acid house and digging for records and then there was an under 18s thing which I got my first gig at which was called Eclipse the big sort of club at the time was uh, Pure and Wave which was Twitch and Brainstorms night. Twitch went on to do Optimo, still is doing it. So that was the kind of roots of the Edinburgh scene. By about 92, 93, Sativa had started, which was the more harder edged, sort of uh, more European style kind of techno, techno night. And that's who I sort of fell in with. And there was quite a difference between those two clubs. I think I read somewhere that uh, Sativa was more influenced by the UK free party scene, a bit grungier. Yeah, it, Sativa was definitely more sort of in the spirit of Spiral Tribe and Bedlam and Mutoid Waste and the guys that had been involved, Dave Tarida and Steve Glencross, Ian Brown, Ali Hill, they'd all been to a lot of these events in 
London and Europe. So they sort of took that flavour back. I mean, there was never really a rivalry between Pure and Sativa. They both kind of existed quite happily. And, you know, these were big numbers going through the doors. Like Pure was busy every week and Sativa was busy every two weeks. So in many ways, it was the kind of peak of uh, the Edinburgh club thing. Going back a little bit before clubs, so you mentioned your first gig at an underage uh night i mean how did you get turned on to electronic music in the first place weren't you a drummer before yeah that's right yeah um it was i mean in the context of the times it was sort of 18 i mean i was playing the drums by 89 and it was just the sort of context of the times that there was a lot of these kind of manchester bands that at the same time you were hearing on sort of bbc programs things like alternate and and it just seemed, you know, it was just, I was just blown away by it. I, remember, I was telling Mark Archer, I distinctly remember getting the bus into Edinburgh to buy a copy of Infiltrate 202 and I bought the silver, the vinyl of it. And from that, I, I was never really 100% sold on guitar bands. I sort of been through, my mates were into heavy metal, some of them were into, you know, some of the hip hop stuff and it, it just never quite sat with me. And then when I discovered the sort of British blossoming rave thing that was when I was like yes you know this is for me enjoy particularly was another one and then you know going to Pure and Sativa was just an education really I mean when I when I got when I went and played at the under 18s thing I was always playing the sort of DJX records and all the sort of weirder kind of European stuff and people just wanted to hear bouncy techno man you know it was like it didn't it didn't really fit there either. But, you know, I was buying things like Energy Flash and RNS records and all that kind of stuff. Was that because you had a really good record store or you were going to Europe or what? No, um, not really. I mean, get, I thought you could buy that stuff in HMV at the time. So, you know, on the wall, they would had all, they had all the latest RNS stuff. And Edinburgh was blessed with a few good specialist shops like Avalanche who got the rarer import stuff and they would get a few of them or actually you know i would go to glasgow i remember getting the bus, the train to glasgow and going to 23rd precinct which was the shop at the time and you know yeah you stood at the counter and they opened a box and i remember they had the import version of toxic 2 rave generator which was a big track at the time and the guy you know the, the guy behind the counter just opened the box and held them up and you just literally had to grab one it was just you know it was very different how it is now it's all very sort of sanitized and predictable then it was like this was the, the sort of rare shit you know you, you had to know where to find these rare imports and things like tracks and dance mania and they were beginning to appear so we're talking about records and record collecting and i assume your first set was a dj set yeah but you haven't you're not really known as a dj i can answer that quite easily by when i got energy flash at the same time i went and out and bought a Boss DR110, I think it was, the, the pencil case drum machine. And I sat and very uh, autistically copied all the drum patterns off Energy Flash into the machine and took great pleasure in being able to play that back. And from that point on, I, I mean, I did, I did kind of like DJ. I did DJ for quite a while, but I was just never that comfortable with it. I was never the sort of foam finger in the air kind of... Uh, character and I just used to stress me out DJing like oh that the records are ending and this one's ending and I just didn't like the pressure of it 
so it just it just became a journey to find the individual machines and meeting people in clubs i was curious as to what science made what so some of these people had the knowledge you know you you couldn't just go on the internet and find this out you had to it, it was a face-to-face -face kind of passing on of the knowledge so i somebody said oh that's a 303 that's a 707 that's a 909 so then i just started hunting these machines down and really so that's what 91 92 so i remember getting a 303 and a 606 by literally going to a music shop asking if anybody knew where one of these machines was somebody knew somebody that used to have one and they used to work at this place so i called up that place got the guy on the phone he said yeah i've just got it in my house i'll sell you them for 80 quid so i got the pair of them for 80 quid and then it was just from that point on, my pleasure was in hooking these machines up together and, and doing little live PAs. So you mentioned people earlier. Were there any kind of key mentors during this time that you, I guess, must have met at Sativa? Talking about the your crew, Dave Sharida, Christian yeah. Vogel. Um, yeah, well, I met Christian through Sativa and I just met Dave and, and he knew that I had all the machines and... and He'd come around a couple of times. We'd hung out and he just said, oh, you've got to come and meet Christian. So it was, you had to sort of put yourself in the right place and, and, and meet these people. I mean, the other people that were very important were Keith and Andy, who did Pure, and a chap called John Stewart, who really, for me, was the kingpin of the scene because he worked in Avalanche, the record shop, and just loved the music and was, was really... Um, really good at hooking up different people so he he actually brought over a lot of the detroit guys at that time um claude young shake shakir uh gemini from chicago dbx so um we got to meet edinburgh was just a bit of a techno hotspot back in the day in early 90s um did it also have like its own kind of sound uh, Am I wrong in saying there was like this wonky techno Edinburgh sound or that came later? Yeah, that, I, yeah that, that, that was a bit later and, and we didn't call it that. No. That was something that was pushed on it. And um, the other, it was the Brighton sound, despite none of us coming from Brighton. Well, I mean, Christian, Christian came did. from Brighton. Yeah. Christian did come from Brighton, but everybody else that apparently was in the Brighton sound didn't. So if, I think if you sort of do it by weight of numbers, it was definitely a Scottish thing. Maybe we're jumping ahead a little bit. Um, this is sort of the no future kind of access, yes, which, which happened kind of late 90s. But we're talking a little bit, for, a little bit earlier than that. So just generally um, give us a bit more of a sense of what the Edinburgh techno scene was like in the very early 90s. Um, didn't Claude Young like actually stay after a visit or yeah, something? Well, that, yeah, so Claude, Claude stayed in the flat that I lived in. So there was this one flat in Edinburgh, which John Stewart was the sort of kingpin of. And he brought all, a lot of these Detroit guys over and started doing gigs, bookings for them. And it was really through that flat that I met DJ Hell, Claude, uh, Claude Christian Vogel, Dan Curtin, basically anybody that came through Sativa or Pure, really. And then, so, you know, a lot of production kind of stuff was talked about. And, you know, Claude Claude was great because, you know, he, he told me what equipment, say, Dan Bell was using. And I, I don't know, it kind of, it was a bit like, you sort of build up this idea of what, 
a lot of the music was made on, thinking they all these kind of super studios. And it was quite, it was quite refreshing to sort of hear it was like a nine and nine something else in his ma's kitchen. You know what I mean? It was no, there was no kind of magic to it other than their own talent. So it, it was just a really interesting sort of time where a lot of connections were made, a lot of knowledge was kind of passed on. And I guess the sort of the seeds of of that particular British kind of sound, the, certainly the Scottish take in it, were, were planted and sort of grown from. And, and you, I, I guess you've got to remember Edinburgh was a very rich scene in that we got Aphex Twin very early. We got Fuse, we got Underground Resistance, we got all these, you know, huge kind of important pieces of the whole picture and we got them early. And and live techno was always a thing like Orbo and Eggy Bamyasa and all these other people. You know, you got to see it firsthand. So it was that was always the a- angle that I wanted to have on it. So then, go on then. Tell us tell us a bit more about Christian. Your first release was with Christian as Blue Asked Fly. Yeah. So I met I met Christian in the summer of ninety four. I think it was ninety three or ninety four, and. We got on really well and he was quite a sort of mad character and he invited me to go down to Brighton because he was the technician at the University of Sussex studio and he was doing the music course there. So he had accessed the keys to this pretty amazing studio, which was a step above anything that I'd ever seen before. And he offered to produce my first record. And at the same time, we did the first record on Sativa which was a kind of acid thing. So, yeah, I went down to Brighton. We hung out for a week, which was really, really good fun. I mean, you know, Brighton is quite different to growing up in the Highlands or Edinburgh, so it's a real eye-opener for me. And then Christian taught me so much in that first week of how to actually make a record. At this point, I just had jams, you know. I I had finished tracks, but I didn't really have kind of proper recording facilities. So Christian was a really good producer, and put his kind of stamp on it as well. So, yeah, it was, I mean, it was just an amazing opportunity, really. So how come this Blue Ass Fly release launched the Sativa label? Why not one of, yeah, Dave's releases? Yeah, so, well, by that point, Dave wasn't actually producing. So it was, it was really just me and Toby, uh, Tobias Schmidt, and Christian and Sai that were doing stuff at this point. Those two, the two tracks that are Blue Arse Fly, that launched the TV closely followed by number two, which was Tobias Schmidt. The tracks that I'd done on my own, that was Mosquito number two, which was Christian's label. And in terms of kind of production, production methodology, I mean, did you have much of a plan then or what was, yeah? I, I didn't really have much of a plan. I guess I was still in the kind of stage of not, not entirely knowing what I wanted to do with it. So I was kind of, I loved the Chicago thing. I was never a massive kind of Detroit fan, although I did. I liked UR and I liked um, a lot of those records. I just, Chicago and the kind of funk and dance mania and the ghetto tech sound, relief, all that was just what I thought was it, you know? So I was a big fan of DBX, Daniel Bell, and what he'd done by that point on Accelerate. So, you know, I kind of copied it a bit, you know, <laughs> but I made I, I made it harder and made it I think a bit funkier. It was harder, faster, and a bit funkier. And 
that was very much in the spirit of what was happening in Edinburgh Sativa. It was it was heavy and upfront, and you know it was a full on party mode, so it needed a bit more pace to it. And you know the stuff that I did on Mosquito, one side was quite you know the sort of jazz sampling stuff and quite kind of introspective and more musical and then the other side was again bits and pieces of sampled records and then my own sort of early forays into kind of synth stuff so you know it, it was a sort of hodgepodge of copying and trying to do something new yeah and then we've got this uh brown by august your first album i was listening to it earlier it's really noisy yes yeah, I mean that, that that's it's just the sound of that is the sound of sativa, just ecstasy, nine oh nines, shuffling, hard, repetitive. I mean, it's, it's funny. It's just, that record sort of defined me, but at the same time, it was such a throwaway kind of thing. It wasn't. I don't know. It's not. Um, I don't ever listen to. It. I mean, it has a few good tracks in it, but it's kind of just the same thing over and over again. But it's sort of that, that those Peace Rock records. I like the twelve inches more in the album, to be honest. And they were just repressed, actually. But some people just never seem to get over them, and they never. You know, I might have. I might as well have not done anything else. You know, what I mean, it's just so. In one sense, it's quite. For years, I sort of resented them because it felt like I was trapped in it, and I've just gone so far away from that kind of sound. But now I kind of, I can like, appreciate it. I mean, it was nice that they repressed them and it's just, I don't know, it's just the sound of that summer. It's just a uh, dirty, hard edged, we're all going to be dead by sort of Christmas type music, I guess. And um, yeah, I mean, the album title Brown by August has a bit of a dark uh, interpretation. Yeah. So that was actually my friend's suggestion. And it, it, it basically is that we'd all be smoking brown by August. So at that time we'd met these characters from the North of England who had slipped down that path and, you know, they were great guys, but at the same time it was like, you know, this is the sort of train spotting time of Edinburgh. So it was all around you. And uh, it was kind of a warning that perhaps that's not the path to go down. <laughs> and, uh, it just seemed to fit, so yeah, stuck with it. But then the uh, sorry, we're going to keep talking about this album. We're only going to talk about this album. Great. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I just one last thing I wanted to ask was the the artwork is um, really obscure. It's like a man in front of a caravan or something. Yeah, it's um, I, the, the, one of my flatmates and sort of oldest pals. He was very much my sort of art man, and. Um, he he designed it along with Matt Consume, who put it together on in the Mac. And the, uh, the whole idea was looking out. In, it's I, th I think it's somebody looking out at a shuttle launch. So he's looking through a prism of glass to not damage his eyes. And I want. I, I guess I wanted the record to look like something from the sixties or the seventies. So it's kind of like meant to be like a sort of sixties or seventies kind of jazz cover. But yeah, no, the artwork still looks good. I think it sort of has dated quite well. So you weren't doing, you hadn't yet found graphic design at this point because that became an important thing later. Yeah, I, I guess with the graphics, I always had a hand in every release, but Matt was very much the graphics guy who became part of No Future. So he, I would always bring him in the images that I wanted on the records and then he would then scan them and package them up and again this is when mac desktop publishing and, and photoshop and this is all when it was in its infancy so it you needed a mac operator to 
to be able to bring your ideas to kind of life. So it was all, I always worked well with Matt and we sort of kicked ideas backwards and forwards. So he went on to design with the images that I selected, all the albums really, uh, uh, through the Trezor ones as well. And it was him who introduced me to After Effects and motion graphics really. So um, I've always had a very keen interest in visual arts though. I kind of wish I went to art college to be honest. Let's now go back to this Brighton, lopsided, wonky techno sound. Um, yeah, what was No Future? Why did you guys band together? Well, it was really Christian's idea. Christian was always very much, he liked to sort of see himself as the kind of creative director of, of everything. And um, he was sort of quite flamboyant with it. And he was seeing a girl called Emma Sola at the time. And they had quite an intense relationship and worked quite well together on, on things. So she kind of started the booking side of things because we were getting beginning to get a lot of requests from Germany where the records were selling really well and France and in Britain. So, you know, she kind of started doing the bookings and Christian had Mosquito and it just kind of made, and then Matt was doing the graphics and then Matt was doing the graphics for other people and other labels. So it just kind of made sense for them to have an office and to sort of make it into a, a bigger thing, I guess, make it a bit more official. So I, I just went along with it. I mean, we all, we all had our own sort of thing going on, but Christian liked to sort of have it all done kind of officially and properly and make it look professional, I guess. And um, yeah, definitely for two or three years, that worked really well, I would say. I mean, it was kind of, it was part of that DIY sort of thing, you know, of doing everything yourself, you know, like at this time records were selling well, you, you could sell a few thousand copies of a 12 inch and make a decent amount of money off that, you know. I think from the outside, it seemed like you were quite like a, a tight crew, I don't know, all living in the same flat or something, but yeah. was it like that or? Yeah, yeah, we were. I mean, it kind of, it started, it was a party, it was like anything, it was, we sort of party together and then Christian was always quite gregarious and invited us down. He had this really cool flat in um, Brunswick Square in Brighton, which is one of those sort of grand white with pillars kind of Brighton flats. And I used to love going down there. It just, you know, you could, you could get weed, <laughs> like, you know, and sort of like there was all these like sort of foreign girls in Brighton and it just, it just seemed really kind of, I don't know, like the San Francisco of Britain or something. I don't know. It was like coming from sort of Mordor in Scotland. It was uh, quite eye opening. And um, yeah, I was, I was quite happy to go along with it really. I mean, Christian also opened the door at Trezor, remember, which was a big thing. So, you know, Christian was very much pushing a lot of boundaries. And he, he, the thing that I loved about Christian's music, it just sounded like no one else at that time. It didn't sound like Detroit techno. It didn't sound like Chicago techno. It just sounded like Christian Vogel, you know? And, um, you know, he liked having people around him, the creative people around him. So he was, he was very good at pulling people into his kind of, into his world, like interesting people, you know, like, like Jamie Liddell and all these people, you know, he sort of attracted them in a way. So on paper, 1996 seemed like a bit of a pivotal year. So you had, you launched your own label, mm -hmm. Scandinavia. Um, you had this Sonic Groove gig in New York. And you were also signed to Trezor. So it seemed like a big, big year. Yeah, I mean, yeah, having your own label was definitely a thing then. And, 
you could sell numbers. So it wasn't quite the sort of slog that it is now. You know, you could put you could put money into a record and get that back a few months later, and then have money to do the next two. And by that time, Christian had done absolute time on Tresor, and I did a track on that with him. And he introduced me to Corolla, who ran Tresor. And she was very, Tresor were at a point where they needed something new. They'd kind of done all the Detroit stuff and they'd kind of, had fl not floundered, but they'd sort of run out of the, that particular uh, sort of seam of music. And the British techno thing was starting to explode. And there was the, the Birmingham scene with Surgeon and Regis. And we were sort of running alongside them. So Christian gave me that opportunity and I had the music at the time to do it. So I was quite happy to go along with that. And then, yeah, getting the opportunity, because Dave, we met this Adam X and so on through Sativa, Sonic Groove people. That was another connection through Sativa because Adam X and Heather Hart had come to to play. Um, and, you know, I'd, I'd always had the dream of uh, perhaps living and working in New York. So, you know, they, they'd sold thousands of our records the peace rock ones in new york i mean these were big hits in america like those records i always one of my first foreign gigs was in chicago so like the peace rock stuff became was a hit in chicago which to me just blew my mind and i remember going to um what was the name of the record shop again hot jams and uh, they had like boo williams and armani and all these people on the wall and they were like oh can we take your picture and put it on the wall and i was like no way <laughs> This is like, you know, dude from Scotland that had had this sort of Chicago sounding stuff, but it'd been big in Chicago, you know? So it was, it was a real, just blew my mind, you know? So they, they, in Sonic Groove, they'd sold thousands of these records. So they invited me over to, to, to play in the, under the Brooklyn Bridge with uh, Christian. Did anything crazy happen? I remember that we were sitting on the tarmac in the plane to, in, to go over there and a truck one of the loading trucks ran into the side of the plane which yeah which meant that everybody had to get off the plane and then they cancelled the flight so we then had to go the next day but the gig was the next day so we literally arrived and then had to go straight to the gig just absolutely shattered the gig was in the sort of the ramparts the sort of base structures of the Brooklyn Bridge so actually legitimately under the bridge inside it yeah so it's like if you look at the sort of footprint at the end of the bridge the big sort of structure the the gig was inside there it was a venue for a while and and adam they had access to it. i think i don't think it lasted that long but it was an amazing architectural space um i've still got the flyer for it somewhere I know you do. It's <laughs> <laughs> got a roach torn off it. <laughs> no, because you've um, you've been very yeah. Well, you kept a scrapbook, didn't you? I, keep a scrapbook. I still do actually. So I, I do. I still keep all the posters and all the flyers. I've got literally like I don't know how many cardboard boxes full of flyers and posters. Not so much the news clippings. I kind of got bored of that. But the the actual. Um, posters and, and and so on and i remember that it's got a piece torn off the corner from, from making a joint i think <laughs> but that's in the book of fame yeah that is which which lasted about a year and a half <laughs> okay. for everyone who doesn't know what the hell we're talking about um neil's basically yeah you've made a scrapbook from the very beginning and now you i think you, when you um, digitally archiving it on Cargo Collective. Yeah, so the majority of it's there. I haven't done it for like a few years. So it's up to about 2015 or something. I did have a previous website, which I'd written loads of stories and stuff on as well. And then that 
something happened with the back end code in it and that just totally kicked me in the guts and I lost it all which was really annoying but um yeah, it's all still there. It's all digitized. I mean, I don't know what I'm going to do because it's actually quite an interesting sort of collection, really, because it's, what, 25 years now? So so museums, if you're listening. Yeah. <laughs> no, I did, I, I did actually get a contact from somebody in France at one of the big French universities in the south, and they were doing a thing on the history of rave, and they wanted to use it all. But it was just going to be too much work to, to sit and transfer it all. So, but yeah. So yeah, you've just basically got boxes and boxes yeah. of shit. Loads and loads of shit. And yeah, it, do, it does make quite a sort of interesting kind of visual history, I think. Because it, it's, it's covering quite a few eras, like, you know, the Planet Moose stuff, which is very much the kind of dubstep and grime sort of era. And then some of the classic hideous 90s American rave flyers, which are now very much in vogue again. And it's just, it's interesting watching how some of it's come back and some of it hasn't. And Was this... Sonic Groove gig, your first trip to New York, did that really, you know, make you think, right, I've been dreaming of this place now, I'm just going to move there now? Or had you visited before? Yeah, I went when I was 16 and uh, I went with my parents after a sort of family tragedy. So that kind of perhaps planted the initial seed. And then when I was at university and, and getting totally bored with that, I did look into trying to transfer get something in new york but just realized it was beyond my economic uh, powers unless you were a rich kid which i wasn't and then the opportunity came up to, to to play in philly and new york and also the limelight i played the limelight just before it so i, I sort of caught the tail end of peter gation and the club kids and all that i mean it was again it was a very interesting time in new york it was kind of it was just as Giuliani had come in, he was cleaning up the city. So you still got the tail end of the kind of the slightly law, more lawless version of New York before the dot com era. So you finally made the move in '97. Well, I remember when I arrived, I had a, I wrote a thing on my wall with my objectives when I was in New York, and uh, one was computerization. I remember because I felt like I was sort of being left behind with the whole mac thing so i bought a mac i wanted to pursue the sort of visual stuff i wanted to completely kind of research and feel out the whole hip-hop thing in new york and what was the other thing maybe the art thing i can't, I can't quite remember but yeah I, I sort of i found it recently and uh, was quite pleased that i'd managed to achieve nearly all of it um, and you, this was the moment where you were kind of the albums that came out on Trezor were written yeah. during this period. Yeah, so basically, Bedrooms and Cities was written just before I moved to New York, and that was the the basically advance for that was what I used to move to New York. So I wrote Bedrooms and Cities in two months, and that came out just as I hit New York, which was quite fortuitous. And then I also wrote Sativa, the Mock by EP which came out and that was quite a big record. So th th that kind of gave me a few grand just to kind of cushion the the move and to mean I could pay my rent for a few months and not have to be totally stressed out about it. And then I read somewhere else that you kind of became the Trezor rep in New York during this time. What did that mean? Yeah, I, well, I, I guess that's maybe sort of stretching it a little bit. What, what, part of me being in New York meant was that 
it was, I always thought of it as a sort of outpost. So Dave and Toby used to come over and we would do gigs from there. And also um, Trezor started doing the Limelight series of gigs. So it was very good to have somebody in New York to kind of facilitate that. And then also we stretched and took the brand down to South America. Some Sugar Experiment Station played in Argentina and Chile. I'd already played in Argentina a couple of times, so I'd had contacts there. So I kind of sold them this idea of uh, doing a Trezor tour. So yeah, I mean, we kind of opened up these kind of areas for them. And plus we were, you know, selling records. You know, we were, these albums sold like, you know, 10,000, 12,000. So it was at a time where units were shifted and, um, America is not easy to crack, you know, it's very difficult, it historically always has been. That was certainly the case. It's a very sort of disparate, like the, the American rave scene is is quite different to how it, then, of to how it is in Europe. So it was kind of a sort of loose collection of kind of people, like, but the Sonic Groove people, they kind of very much dominated it on the East Coast. And, you know, Frankie Bones was just playing all these different places. But it was, it was fun, you know. So you mentioned you wanted to find out more about hip-hop what happened with that why didn't you make any or did you well I, I did i mean i did i did sort of make beats I, I never really kind of did much with um mcs or anything but i did you know on the hip-hop on the trezor albums there's always a couple of kind of hip-hop tracks on it um it, i mean more from a sort of buying all the old records and i went to quite a lot of hip-hop gigs and just I was always, I'm always very curious about soaking in the atmosphere of places. So I, part of my time in New York was in Hollis, Queens, uh, where it's run DMC and Tribe Called Quest came from. And, and it's more like the ethnic kind of mix there was really inspiring. Um, you know, you'd hear Bangra belting out of cars and then you hear Filipino music and Jamaica, Queens was an eye opener as well because, you know, you, you had all the kind of uh, reggae and uh, dance hall stuff as well so it was, it was just sort of music that you would never really be exposed to in scotland normally and uh also just the street culture i mean new york is is a you know a real melting pot and you know seeing the projects and seeing some of the areas where all this kind of stuff came from and the the communication between the boroughs and the train system and it just all feeds into the kind of inspiration for a lot of that music so in addition to music, New York was very important for you because this is where you started working for MTV? Yeah. Um, I mean, that came out of... Because I, I, I started picking up motion graphics and I was... Uh, I've always kind of had other interests to in music. It's never been my sole thing. So I started teaching myself After Effects and Lightwave and putting together kind of music promos, I guess. And... I had a friend who worked at Rockstar Games who came from the House of God, uh, Terry Donovan, and he had started or been involved very early on in Rockstar Games. So I was making bits and pieces of kind of animated graphics for them, which they used at um, E3. This is before GTA 3, so this is just before they kind of really exploded. And at the same time, again, through my music, I had a contact at MTV for their electronic music show, which is called Amp. So then I just started pushing demos of showreels of uh, motion graphics to them and then got the opportunity to do on-air promo campaigns for MTV2, which was the sort of more alternative channel. I never actually worked on the main 
MTV. I mean, MTV at that time, it was interesting because it was before they kind of became the more lifestyle type channel and went kind of crappy. So it was the guy that um, who employed me, he was mad cool. He was, you know, in all sorts of music and MTV2, MTVX, MTVS were their sub channels. So you didn't, you had complete creative freedom. So you could really get away with doing some quite subversive stuff, but it wasn't in the glare of the main channel, you know. So are you talking about like these short like promo yeah. graphics? Yeah, so it's the on-air campaigns are like packaging for the channels. So it tends to be the bits in between videos or the branding or the look of the channel for that season or it's just on-air packaging is called. So, you know, it tended to always be the animation of the logo, but you, you had like 10 or 15 seconds of of you know whatever stuff so one one year i did a sort of quite 1984 sort of feeling thing which went down really well but i mean it's quite subversive because it was kind of taking the piss out of viacom really and they're they're the ones that were kind of paying for it <laughs> so you know it, it was great i mean i i always remembered you know selling this work that i'd done to mtv and you know getting paid for it and it just felt like i was on top of the world you know because it was i was all done independently i wasn't actually working there i was just a contractor and this was at the same time i was doing a lot of the stuff on trezor so i kind of had two things on the go at once so i mean you needed to in new york that's the thing and then i guess at some point you met the video artist and painter jeremy blake and yeah. started collaborating with yeah, him so so Jeremy, he was the art director at Rockstar at the beginning, and he came up with their logo and a lot of their initial visual style and aesthetic. And we just clicked. We just really got on and, and you know, we used to go for drinks and I went to his early kind of gallery openings. And I, I, I just really loved what he was doing visually. It was, it, was, it was digital work, but it was all very painterly and very informed by like Rothko and a lot of, you know, this quite sort of well-respected kind of modern art. And it, I don't know, he just he just had a sort of certain uh, aura about him, which I liked. You know, he was sort of, he was good looking and he could talk the talk and he could meet all these different gallerists and it just seemed like water off a duck's back to him. And, you know, the paintings just, I don't know, they just looked like nothing else at the time because they were sort of, he did do prints, but then he also did these animated paintings, which had you know, the doors would open and you kind of enter into a space and it was very sci-fi and quite, um, I don't know, sort of 2001-ish, but then very, very designy and it, had a, it was just really, really cool. And just, so I used to tag along with him and, you know, he liked the sort of Scottish humour and the music and it kind of kept him a bit more grounded, I guess, at the time. So is this sort of like your entry into the New York art scene? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was, I was always sort of slightly uncomfortable by it. And the, the, the other thing that I kind of discovered was you sort of, it's that thing of something being glamorous that you think it's going to be so glamorous, but then actually when you get into it, it's really not like that. And it's all quite fake and quite kind of bullshit. And the type of people that are buying the art are not buying it because they enjoy it. They're buying it because they're investing in it. And it's just this hideous kind of like orgy of money and tasteless people and i don't know it's all it's pretty kind of fake and phony i mean there there is good people in it though but you just have to be able to play this game real really hard you know and 
I mean, that was the other thing. It's like at these parties, there's like, they don't really enjoy themselves. So it's not like you kind of have this idea of it being, you know, looking at skyscrapers and it being glamorous and fabulous. But it's not really like that. I don't know. It's sort of one of those ones where you get closer to it, it's must start smelling a shit. <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of like, and just, I always remember the one thing that really pissed me off was, so I ended up being Jeremy's sort of kind of assistant and doing his after effects and doing the sound design. So I was quite proud of the sound design side of it. But the gallerist would pay me before the work was sold. And I would get invited to the kind of openings and all that. So I'd be speaking to this guy on the phone and dealing with him and everything else. And he knew who I was, but then when it came to actually the events, I was invisible. And it just, it just makes you feel like absolute shit to have somebody who you've been speaking to. And you're like kind of, you're looking at yourself as if it's like, am I, what, what, am I not important now or something? And that, that just sums up the kind of art industry, you know, it's, it's just very much like that commodification of stuff. And, but Jeremy was good. He could kind of navigate that. And, and him and his girlfriend were very much fake it till you make it. And they had these kind of, he couldn't afford it, but he had a loft in Soho and they had Vive Clico parties and big massive Christmas trees. And I'd just be sitting in the corner kind of, laughing and smoking a joint and enjoying it but at the same time just seeing it for what it was um but it was interesting i mean it kind of gave me that new york experience i mean i always remember when i moved to new york somebody said to me in new york you will only ever have a slice of it you'll never get anything more than a slice of it and 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 that is so true you kind of go there with these huge ideas but you can only ever just get one cross section of it and, and that's just how it is Interesting. So did you leave feeling disappointed? I a bit, yeah. I, I mean, I kind of remember, I, I kind of hit a point where the political system had changed. 2000, the September 11th thing had happened. It felt like a chapter closing. And I remember feeling a bit of a failure. I mean, I'm, I'm always a bit sort of glass half full anyway, but it kind of, I kind of wanted to, to leave on a high note. I mean, again, it, maybe it was just the time or whatever, but I did feel that I hadn't quite achieved what I'd set out to achieve. But then I always remember my dad saying, you know, the emphasis is on the success. It's not on the, on the failure. Cause New York beat, New York beats everyone. You can't, you can't win ultimately. Like I was faced with the choice of staying and putting down roots and becoming one of those New York people or just closing the book. And that was the end of that chapter and moving on. So you went for the second option. Yeah. I, I was the humor side of it. Like most of my mates were, were Latin Americans and, and uh, they were fantastic. You know, they had similar sense of humor, a strong sort of family thing, but I really missed the Scottish sense of humor. And you, you know, you would, you would be, you would just be how you are there and people would get so offended. And I'm just like, no, I'm just having a laugh. They just didn't quite know how to take that. I mean, I suppose it is a bit abusive. There's no doubt about it, but it's funny. I mean, you know, I mean, it's funny. I mean, I like it. I like getting the piss taken out of my mates, you know. So, but it just never. It, there was always a prickliness about it, and um, so most of my pals ended up being, you know, Mexican from LA or, or Ecuadorian or you know Bolivian, and and I just never quite could see myself settling there forever. So I've gone, moved back to Scotland. Is this the moment where you kind of fell out of love with techno a bit or did it happen before or? Yeah, I mean, by that point, techno had become kind of dull, I would say. It was the end of the noise, early 
end of the 90s, early noughties. And so I did an album called She Took a Bullet from Meant For Me on Trezor, which was after the success of Bedrooms and Cities and Pro Audio, which sold shitloads, you know, and they really, Trezor really expected another one of those. And Breakcore was coming in and I was, I was influenced by that. And Matt consumed who had done the graphics in Nofiji, he was doing trash records, which was again, very inspiring. And this was like all over the place. Like the techno thing had just turned into this horrible Millsian loop stuff. And you know what, actually I blame the distributors for this because the distributors started, they saw the success of certain labels and they thought, oh, I know we can start our own labels and do the same and make even more money. And they started manufacturing these labels and just pumping the shops full of the same kind of records. And no wonder it kind of got stale because they, they didn't have the creative angle on it that the producers did. And they just flooded the market with just absolute dross. And it just killed it. It was just boring. It was just totally boring. And a lot of, by that point, people were drifting off into doing different things. So yeah, it become completely stale. And uh, She Took a Bullet was, you know, more break beats, more, it was kind of weird like oh, I always remember this guy coming up to me and saying oh yeah yeah you know that she took a bullet the one the album that nobody likes <laughs> and I was a bit like I mean I found it yeah I found it funny but at the same time it was like well there is some good stuff on it you might not understand it now but I bet you will in 10 years time and then fact put it in their like top 100 sort of electronic albums and I was like well there you go vindication <laughs> thank you fact <laughs> You mentioned Breakcore then. I mean, I'm I'm a huge fan. I didn't realise you were a yeah, fan as well. Yeah, I mean, I did a gig. I played it further, which was this mad party in Wisconsin, which was the um, Drop Bass Network crew. And that, yeah, that was what, 2000. I met um, Ferenc there, IF, actually, who we got on really well. I had a good chat with him. And um, aye, that was when Dormouse and his crew were doing a thing. And he... <laughs> I didn't know quite how to take it because I was DJing. I was never that comfortable, like I said before, about DJing. But so I was about to play, and then they all appeared in nappies, <laughs> and they were they, their whole purpose was to disrupt me. And Dormouse, he was being a real prick, actually, and he kept putting like a bottle of Jack Daniels on the on the turntables, and I kind of figured it was like they were just doing it to be kind of disruptive kind of pricks, and they wanted to sort of push their kind of more punky kind of thing but I was like down with it I wasn't I didn't have any objection to what they were and he, he, was, he had a megaphone and he kept going techno rave techno rave like this like trying to take the piss out of me and I was just a bit well so I kind of I went and hung out with him and 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 got the sort of chat and all that and I just said look because I'd done a record called shit and cheat by this point which was total kind of fucked up break core and uh, you know we got on or whatever I, I and Venetian snares and all that and I kind of I liked I liked it I liked the sub I've always liked subversive things that kind of switch it up a bit so it was a change you could tell there was the winds were changing and that techno and house thing it was not going to be cool in the next few years because it had run its course I still don't understand how IF was at this crazy party well so no he he was playing that was around the time of um what was his biggest record Space Invaders so I, he was uh, it was me and him that were headlining this thing. And it, it was it was in the middle of this cornfield. I mean, it's quite a legendary sort of Midwest kind of event. Uh, Daft Punk played it like an EFX twin a couple of years before. And um, 
hell's angels were like they were the security and there's like you know you're literally surrounded by these ears of corn it was like some sort of weird uh, midwest horror film but i i ferenc was there and we got chatting before it so i was hanging out with him um did that put you off the break or scene or what no, i mean it, it, it intrigued me i mean i kind of I, I was quite impressed with their sort of ballsiness to be honest um it just kind of made me sit up and listen that that the dom I mean, it, you're kind of almost at that point again now, I think, really, where the techno things has become so commodified and watered down and it needs something like Breakcore to come in, younger sort of people or just people with different ideas to go, actually, no, this is kind of boring and we want to do something different, you know? So I was always open. I liked it because it sounded a bit like Jungle that had gone completely wrong, you know? So... So from breakcore to grime, what was it about grime that attracted you that you were motivated to sort of start playing around with it? Well, again, it, it, John Peel at that time was playing our records and I remember him playing Johnny Cash and um, Black Ops records, which was, it was kind of around the time it wasn't really called grime. It was eight bar, sub low, grime, dubstep. None of these labels had sort of stuck yet. And... I, it just the beats were much fresher it didn't have the same 4-4 thing and but the sound palettes they were using was exactly the same as the Brit bass, British bass and bleep sounds at the time so I don't know it just kind of it just sort of made sense to me that, that there was a whole new generation that were perhaps rediscovering a lot of these original kind of bass lines and bleeps but doing a different thing with it so I, I just kind of had my ear to the ground with it and, and started beginning to sort of make forays into that style of stuff. And that, that was eventually what became the Planet Moo releases. So then we're kind of now talking kind of mid-2000s yeah, to... Two, yeah. yeah, the moment where Planet Moo was definitely in its absolute... Element. I still think it's a fantastic label now. But yeah, it wasn't just... Gr you were kind of... This was a moment where you just really explored all kinds of music um, and I wanted to pick up on the point I think in a couple of interviews you've mentioned sort of being this outsider um, living on the fringes status n and never really being accepted by kind of you know grime dubs these scenes that you were kind of plundering so yeah ha maybe you could unpack that a little bit yeah I mean I've always felt like that really because in the sort of peak of the techno thing the British British techno thing, the no future thing, whatever you want to call it, it was always considered a sort of alternative bubble. And it was always looked down upon by the sort of techno purists as being a bit a bit, a bit silly or a bit, um, you know, baselines. Why have you got baselines? You know, it was sort of, we just never really fitted into their box. And it was a bit like that in the Planet Moo year. Like I was kind of doing what I called Rave Step or somebody called Rave Step, you know. And it was like, basically it was all the music that had brought me into the rave scene, like LFO. And I was drawing on that but mixing it with dubstep kind of beats so restaurant of assassins was sort of that and um it just brings together sort of a kind of i, I don't know I, I do have a lot of pride in sort of british electronic music the history of it i'm not so proud of sort of britain as a whole concept but uh, when it comes to culture i am and you know, just the, the massive J jamaican influence and the potency of its contribution to dub plate culture and bass sound system culture and everything and for me it was a record that kind of tied up a lot of the feelings of why I got into the music in 1990 and what was happening at the time which was the sort of 
explosion of dubstep and digital mystics and and that whole kind of that whole sound which was really refreshing to my ears at that time and I went to a lot of those parties in their infancy at Leeds and down in London and in Glasgow and stuff so now kind of fast forwarding to present day almost um you've got quite a few albums under your belt ridiculous amount of records you've sort of touched upon most genres and then mangled them all together in certain in some respects you know when you were saying earlier about this out the your debut album and how it really defined your your peace peace frog records uh, have you ever had this problem of being kind of labeled as like this one type of artist this this techno artist is it always you know yeah. yeah i mean i suppose i have but i think i think now i'm finally managed to shed that skin because in the last few years I've done the sort of more Italo stuff for, say, David Vonk, Moustache, or I did a kind of horror disco thing um, for Giallo Disco. And I think people, a lot of fans, they kind of realise I'm not going to do the same record and over and over again. So there's been some fans that have been with me for the whole journey, and that's really cool. But it is always a little bit annoying when somebody's sort of like, they always hark back to those Peace Rock records and, and that's it because I've done so much more and there's so much more to come at the moment. Um, you know, I've just pretty much signed off a double pack to Swamp 81 for, for Lofa. So we're just, you know, that at the moment I'm just full of, of passion for this new sound that I've come up with, which is going to define, I think the next few years. So I don't know. I just, I don't, I don't really, I don't, I'm not somebody that really looks back to be honest. I'm, I'm always excited about the next record. I mean, Sometimes, I mean, now it's, it's harder to make an impact now. So you release a record and you kind of think it's going to have more of an impact. And, and the sort of social media age of Insta DJs and everything else, it does seem a bit like something's been lost somewhere. Like, why is it numbers are defining how popular somebody is or their influence? It just doesn't make any sense to me. You know, and, and I was quite late to the game with, say, Instagram. And the one thing I have noticed is the numbers have been climbing. I've only been doing it a year. Is that there's so many hollow followers that it's just meaningless so what's the point of having 20,000 followers if 18,000 of them are hollow followers it's just totally pointless I'd much rather influence people through actual records you know get off Instagram then yeah I don't know I mean it kind of I did this the boiler room thing for warp in February in Sheffield last year it was a great party and and I was about to come on and there was a a, a kid who was you know everybody's on their phones all the time and Winston Hazel was playing who to me is one of the most important characters in the British you know Forge Masters Warp number one just hugely positive guy just you know Jive Turkey all these important nights that he did in the late 80s and through the the 90s and the, the kid was sort of the kid who came and was like, who's this playing who's this playing I'm like oh it's Winston Hazel you know Warp Records number one Forge Masters he goes but I can't find him on Instagram <laughs> And I was like, what? Because you can't find him on Instagram means he doesn't exist. I mean, it's just insane. The guy's in front of you playing. It's Winston Hazel, you know? And it was just like, I don't know. It was a bit of a kind of eye opener. I was a bit like, wow, is that actually where we're at right now? Maybe it is. I don't know. And it, I think it's too easy to be kind of cynical about it. But I, I actually think there's a massive correction coming in the whole social media thing in music. And it's going to be very uncool, I think, to be a social media kind of presence. I mean, there's no mystique. I don't want to see DJs in Bali every day, you know, pictures of, it's so narcissistic. I don't know, it's just, I mean, I'm on it too, but I think I'm, 
doing it in my own kind of arty way. I'm not necessarily, it's not about me. It's not about me, the person, you know. And I just wonder where that's going to go, to be honest. To not end on a social media rant, yeah. um, let's close on talking about um, Scandinavia. So you actually brought it back for the first time in like nine years yeah. or something, a record with Brain Rays, who I know back to breakcore and wrong music so let's let's start there yeah so 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 ben and i met at a festival in ireland around about 2005 2006 so around about the time we were talking about earlier and wrong music were very much the core sound of the festival so I, you know i was what 34 or something i was sort of feeling like a bit of the kind of grandpa techno kind of guy and ben was just so cool and, and approachable and we just really clicked. So he, so me and him have, have, have written quite a lot of collaborative stuff. Like he was on my Planet Moo albums. Um, we did a sort of collab uh, EP, and we've the first Brain Raisin and Landstrom thing was on Unknown to the Unknown last year, and was really well received. Like this kind of electro funk thing on one side, um, and sort of crunky kind of hip hop thing. So yeah, me, me and him got together and did a new Scandinavian. I mean that that basically came around because a distributor asked if I wanted to to do it and seeing as they were going to pay for it I just said yes <laughs> so I was, it wasn't any like grand planner but with Scandinavia every record I've ever done always says always has a Scandinavia logo on it so in my head it's continued the entire time so it's just it, Scandinavia is just Landstrom it's the same thing really it's just a sort of artistic tag you said you don't look back, but do you have any regrets or is it something that you might have changed or like the biggest lessons for going forward? I think we probably could have played the game a bit better, I think. is like Because at the time, Sativa was very much faceless techno bollocks. And we just, when it came to kind of, we just didn't really deal with the media. There's no record of it. It's almost like it never existed, but yeah, it was such an important thing at the time. And, you know, we were selling thousands of records compared to a lot of other British labels, but we just never really capitalized on it, which, you know, again, is kind of cool. But at the same time, I think we perhaps could have been in a better position at, at different points of our careers if we had. You know, I think we probably didn't quite get the recognition that we deserved for pushing the British sound. I mean, it was, I guess being on Trezor was really cool and, and we got to play all around the world, but we never really got the recognition in the British press that perhaps maybe we were more entitled to, I think, at the time. It always seemed to kind of go to other people, which was kind of, I mean, we weren't really that bothered, so I'm not sure it's really a regret, but maybe for the case of archiving history, it would be good if that was acknowledged. 